Almost everyone who has spent time in a cemetery, even as a casual observer, has seen the Mason Square and Compass. Arguably, they are perhaps the most common symbol that can be found on tombstones in the United States. They range as far back as the beginnings of the country and are still present in modern cemeteries today. It may seem like a simple question, but who were the Masons? What do their myriad of symbols mean? And why do they have so much to do with cemeteries? I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So, this is a episode that's a long time coming, and I confess that since I started this podcast, I have thought about doing this episode probably five or six times, and I finally got around to doing it. And I admit I'm still not happy with my research, which is something I don't often say. Sometimes I will think that my research is a little thin or it could be bulked up in certain areas. This research just to me feels weak, particularly since I have already covered the Oddfellows and I thought that I did a pretty good job and the Oddfellows episode was pretty robust. To be fair, the Oddfellows also have the weird skeletons that pop up in abandoned buildings, which lends itself to a whole other exploration. I think part of the problem with Masonic symbols is that they are so common. They are almost too common. And they're everywhere. The problem with Masons is also there is no true central body. So there is a lot of variation and there are a lot of holes because in many ways they can go rogue. And then, of course, the last problem is it's a secret society by definition. And so secret societies often don't reveal truths. Now, that being said, I'm going to do my best to try to give you an idea. Now, if you have been listening to this podcast for a while, you already know a lot of what I'm going to tell you, at least in terms of the importance of fraternal organizations in the building of the United States. But the Masons are different than many other fraternal organizations in a number of ways. Now, I have met a number of Masons. I used to work pretty closely with one, and he did tell me a few interesting things, nothing that would betray his secret oaths, of course. But I did get the impression, and this is something that I think causes the Masons to diverge a lot, that so much of what they do is intellectual. And it's about the seeking of knowledge. And while it is a fraternal organization and it serves that purpose, in many other ways, it it diverges from the Benevolent and Protected Order of the Elks and even the Oddfellows in the fact that it is more about the seeking of knowledge as opposed to just being a social experience. And hopefully as I talk a little bit about the Masons, you will understand that. I will thank Lexi. Um, This was another one of the episode topics that she had suggested to me. And she sent me some very interesting pictures of the Masonic section at her local cemetery, which is actually a memorial park. And that's one of the other cool things about Masons is that they do continue. And odds are you have driven past a cemetery that has Masonic symbols 
But you also may have driven past an active Masonic Lodge. I remember near my old office, there was a Masonic Lodge that I passed all the time, and they would often have famous Americans who were Masons who were posted outside on their little billboard. I know here in Atlanta, we actually just designated one of the former Masonic halls, and so you often see them repurposed as different things. Almost every downtown Main Street has a Masonic building of some kind because they were part of the construction of this. And I apologize in advance, whatever you hear in the back. I have kept putting recording this episode off because there is massive construction going on next to me. In addition to that, my upstairs neighbor has now decided he is just going to push his furniture around the room for 20 minutes. And my next door neighbor is having some sort of guitar drum jam session with his friend. I have recorded episodes in my bathroom in the past, but it is not the most comfortable experience and it causes reverb and echo. So I'm going to do my best. I apologize in advance for any background noise. Um, my closet is just too small to record in, and given the acrobatics that are happening upstairs, I doubt it would even help. I'm sorry, I just had a long pause there because I I was wondering if that was a body falling upstairs. So anyways, that's all part of the fun of not being a professional podcaster. Let's talk a little bit about some Masons. Now, It depends on who you read, but the generally accepted story about Freemasonry is that it dates back to the time of the construction of the great cathedrals. So we are talking possibly as early as the 1200s. Now, the great cathedrals were built by guilds, and guilds, if you remember your history class, were groups of tradesmen who worked together, not only would you be apprenticed and you would train with them, but then you would be accepted into the guild, and the guilds essentially were proto-labor unions that would help you to get work. Now, the Order of the Free and Accepted Masons post-dates this time period. So the idea is that during sort of this feudal period, when many of the cathedrals were erected, these guilds had a very important place in society. They were very popular. And if you're familiar with the arts and crafts movement that happens, oh, around the turn of the last century, in many ways the arts and crafts movement was sort of a push to get back to that sort of guild system where it was trying to train groups of skilled artisans and get these groups to work together for sort of a common good. Walter Gropius in the Bauhaus in the, you know, during the Weimar Republic does a similar thing. There's been an attempt to revitalize these types of groups many times over the years. None of them truly successful, which I guess is a reason to be even more impressed by the Freemasons. So essentially the idea is that as this system breaks apart and as you move more into the Renaissance, and it starts to be more of a dog-eat-dog capitalist world, these guilds start to fall apart. And in many ways, it happens because there is no longer a need for as many skilled workers. And so what starts to happen is that they become Freemasons, meaning that they are free of the guilds and that they are organized independently. And they start to accept members who are, in fact, not Masons in terms of their profession, but rather are seeking to build something else. And this something else is a moral, 
intellectual and spiritual ideology that surrounds hard work, perseverance. It is not a religion. And that's an important distinction to make. And this was always something that I sort of misunderstood about Freemasonry for a very long time. But rather, they were a group that developed symbols, that developed rituals to contain their search for this type of moral, intellectual, and spiritual education. Now, there's a lot of years that you know, transpire in between what was happening with the building of the great cathedrals and when the first lodge is officially organized. It's theorized that grand lodges probably date back to the late 1500s. And in many cases, the lodge at St. Mary's Chapel Number 1 in Edinburgh, which was organized in 1598, is theorized to be the oldest. But like in most things in history... The English tell the story. And the way that the English tell it, the first Grand Lodge is organized in 1717. Now, this time period is very important because in 1721, the constitutions of the Freemasons, which are written by a Scot by the name of James Anderson, are written. And in this case, just like with the Bible, just like with the Quran, just like any significant text... At this point in history, the majority of people are not literate. Things are passed down by oral tradition. So while there may have been orders of Freemasons prior to this, orders of free and accepted Masons prior to this, this is when they are organized and sort of the bylaws are written. So in many ways, even though the roots of these fraternal organizations probably don't originally date to England and Scotland, it is in England and Scotland that they are elevated and they are organized more. Now, this may seem nitpicky, but I think it's important to make a distinction because many of you may be familiar with things like the Scottish Rite. So, for example, when I lived in Savannah, one of the buildings that's very prominent in town is the Scottish Rite Temple. This is a Freemasons building, but it is the Scottish Rite of the Freemasons. And this is where things start to get a little woolly and why it's kind of hard sometimes to understand and keep track of the Masons because there is not just one group of Freemasons that all follow the same rules. There are a whole bunch. Depending on where you are and even what point in history you were looking at, you're going to see different rules. So if you've ever seen the beginning of Forrest Gump, when the feather floats down over the church spire, that's the Independent Presbyterian Church, it floats down over Chippewa Square and across from IPC, the Independent Presbyterian Church, is the Scottish Rite Temple. So you can actually see the Scottish Rite Temple behind Forrest Gump most of the movie when he's sitting on the park bench. Fun fact. Again, you have probably seen versions of Freemasons Halls in almost every town in the United States. Some of them may be Scottish Rite, some of them may be York Rite. There are a number of different versions of the Freemasons whose rituals and practices and levels all kind of vary. So 1721, when the Constitutions is promoted, this is when things start to get much more significant. Now, it's also worth noting that there are other splinter groups that are bumping off all the time. Now, 
I already talked about the Oddfellows last year. I think it was December of last year I talked about the Oddfellows. There are others, like, for example, the Ancient Arabic Order of the Nobles of the Mystic Shrine. You probably know them better as Shriners. They have the cool hats. There are lots of fraternal organizations that are relatively old ones compared to some of the newer ones, like the Elks. These all break off at different points and they end up having different goals. I'm just going to focus on sort of the as many of the mainstream Masons as I can. So, what does it take to be a Freemason if you no longer actually have to be a Mason? So first of all, you have to be male. I will talk about what happens if you are not male in a little while. Second, you must profess two things. Belief in a supreme being and a belief in the immortality of the soul. Now, this is one of the things that I misunderstood before. You have to believe in a higher power. And this is something that the Oddfellows also believe in, going back to that episode. It is not necessarily Jesus Christ. It is not necessarily God. And so this is the reason that Freemasonry is not a religion, and it is open to people from different religions. You know, calling someone Yahweh versus Allah versus God versus Christ— All of those things are less important than believing in a higher power. This and the immortality of the soul. And so this is where there can be some divergent beliefs depending on what your religious background is. Now, one of the things that happens later on is that you have a break. So this is what is known as basic Freemasonry or is also known as the craft Blue Lodge Masonry is another term, and this was something that somebody actually taught me a couple months ago when I posted a picture of a hand-painted marble Freemason stone at Eastern Cemetery in Louisville, Kentucky, which was painted blue. Um, They talked about how the majority of Masonic Lodges, because their father had been in a Masonic Lodge, were painted blue, and this was something I had not previously known. So Blue Lodge Masonry is sort of core Masonry. More recently, there has been a breakaway. One of the major schisms in Freemasonry is the formation of continental Freemasonry, um, probably the largest branch of which is the Grand Orient of France, which does not require profession in a absolute being. So if you are an atheist or agnostic, you can still join the Masons without having to profess belief in a higher being. Once you are accepted, and I'm going to, okay, this is a pretty good point. So you must be invited to be a Mason. Now, sometimes people are introduced to lodges. Other times they seek them out and they seek out information and they receive an invitation. But you must be invited to join and you file a formal application, which includes, um, references who have to be interviewed you have to pay a certain amount of money and going back and looking some some of the founding fathers who were freemasons this was not a cheap proposition so in many ways it could be limiting based on your socioeconomic value but once you had done this then there is another level where you are interviewed by the lodge and they make decisions. And this is where the term blackball comes from, um, according to a lot of sources, where the idea is that there is a secret ballot where members of the lodge vote on you. 
And the amount of black balls or votes against you that you receive does vary depending on the order and the lodge. In some cases, you only need one vote against you not to be accepted. In some cases, it's three or even more. But it is a process, and if you are rejected, you often have to go through a pretty stringent process to be considered again. Now, the way that it is organized in the United States is it is organized by Grand Lodge. So there are many smaller lodges which answer to the Grand Lodge. So in the United States, there are 51 Grand Lodges, one in each state and the District of Columbia. And there can be a number underneath them. Now, at certain points in the past, there have been states that have more than one Grand Lodge vying for power. Um, probably the most significant example I saw was in New York, where there were two. Now, Grand Lodges between states recognize one another. So often, if you go to a new state, you can be recognized by a new Grand Lodge, but only if they have previously recognized the Grand Lodge that you come through. This is a little wooly, and without having specific examples, I'm not sure exactly how this sort of bureaucratic level works, but that's the general organizational style. It's generally acknowledged that there are about 6 million Masons in the world today, about 2 million of those, so roughly a third of those are in the United States. So there are a lot of Freemasons still floating around. Not when you consider it versus the population of the U.S., which is 300 million, roughly, give or take, but still a decent amount. There is no global organization that oversees this. Now, the Grand Lodges within states, some can be York, some can be ancient and accepted, some can be Scottish Rite. There is a lot of variation in between. And again, this is why it can sometimes seem confusing based on what they call things, what's average, what's not, which symbols they use, which numbers they use. There, there's a lot of variation just because there are so many different types of Freemasonry. The general craft acknowledges three levels, and this is how most lodges operate from everything that I have read. Apprenticeship, then the journeyman or fellow of the craft, and then lastly, master mason. Now, it seems that if you were motivated enough, particularly in the past, you could achieve the level of master mason pretty quickly. Um, so for example, I was reading about George Washington and I believe he achieved master Mason within under two years. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a master Mason? It means that you have controlled and learned a certain amount of the teaching. Now, this teaching focuses on a couple of things. The first of which is the construction of the Solomon of temple, the temple of Solomon, excuse me. And also on the death of Hiram Abiff. I believe that's how you pronounce it. So Hiram Abiff, if you are not familiar with that name, is the man who was supposedly the architect for the Temple of Solomon. Now, if you have forgotten your Bible, the Temple of Solomon is very specific. This is the temple. The one which is very much a focus um, in the Old Testament this is where the Ark of the Covenant rested, where that true knowledge which was given to man from God rested. So this is the pinnacle of ancient buildings. Now, Hiram, as the supposed architect, 
His story is the basis for the teachings which allow you to ascend to the level of Master Mason from everything that I have read. And the reason for this is that Hiram, after the completion of the temple, is actually murdered in the temple by three ruffians who break in and they attempt to learn the secret passwords and the secret knowledge of the temple from him. And so it's told as a cautionary tale of the importance of what you should do as a Mason. Now, in the United States, it's theorized that we have had Freemasonry as early as 1715. Um, this is according to John Moore, who is the collector for the Port of Philadelphia. In his reports, he talks about Freemasonry. The first provincial Grand Master was appointed by the Grand Lodge of England in 1731. Either way, we have had Freemasonry for a very long time. Now, I did tell you that it was only for men. Well, what about everyone else? So, there is a female equivalent of Freemasonry, and this is the Order of the Eastern Star, which many of you may be familiar with because the Order of the Eastern Star does have a lot of symbolism present in cemeteries as well. This is actually open to both men and women, but is far more common among women. Now, for boys, there are protoforms of Freemasonry, the two most popular being the Order of Demole or the Order of the Builders. And for girls, there is the Order of Job's Daughters and the Order of the Rainbow. Talk about a juxtaposition. The Order of Job's Daughters. Yeah, we all know Job. Not a happy story there. Or the Order of the Rainbow, which sounds fantastic. And I've actually seen some gravestone symbolism out in California that is four members of the Order of the Rainbow, which is actually a lot of fun. So Freemasonry, they did acknowledge that this was something for the whole family at different points. So the question is, we have Freemasons in the United States. Now what do they start doing? So they are vital in a number of different capacities. As I already mentioned, most of the founding fathers, people like Benjamin Franklin, people like basically everyone you can think of, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, they are all Freemasons. And there is a reason for this, because it in many ways, and I think the most interesting description I read of this was that um, the Continental Army was essentially a Grand Lodge. As wealthy, educated men who were, no pun intended here, the kingmakers in the American colonies, they were already the intellectuals of the time. We're not talking about farmers. We're not talking about real journeymen in many cases. We're talking about wealthy, educated people, the majority of whom have gone to college, the majority of whom are very, very accomplished. So it makes sense that they would be a part of this. And the association, particularly with Washington, is something that will continue with Freemasonry up through today. And I know I talked a little bit about this when I did the episode on George Washington's tombs. We know that the Freemasons performed rites with him um, upon his death. He is still considered to be kind of the pinnacle. If you have ever been to Alexandria, Virginia, there is a massive lodge there. The monument to George Washington that was built, it's massive on top of a hill. I visited it. Really interesting place. I got there too late to see the inside of it. But 
you cannot overstate how much the Freemasons have embraced particularly George Washington as a symbol for them. This tradition means a couple of different things. Again, if you have listened to the episode that I did on the Odd Fellows, I talked a lot about how these organizations, in many cases, even though they start in New England, they start in the Mid-Atlantic, their real strength lies in the West. And some of the most impressive Masonic cemeteries, not all of which are still there, for example, the Masonic Cemetery in San Francisco was lost, along with the other massive cemeteries um, that were removed between the turn of the century and the 1930s to Colma. But there are some very impressive Masonic cemeteries in the West. Um, I was disappointed, so I pulled off all of my books off the shelves to try to do a comparison of which Masonic cemeteries we know about, who is talking about them, where they are. Some of the what I consider to be the best books about the history of American cemeteries don't even mention the Freemasons. And this is why it's such a strange topic to cover. And one of the reasons that I put it off for so long, they're everywhere. Masons are everywhere. Masonic cemeteries are everywhere. There's no denying this, particularly in the South and West. But there has not been a really comprehensive history written for almost all of them. The one exception I will make to this is the Masonic Cemetery in New Orleans. A great deal has been written about that. And if you search Masonic Cemeteries even online, that's probably going to be one of the first things that pops up. And you might ask, why is this? And I think it's because... These cemeteries were organized out of necessity. And people were so familiar with these organizations at the time. There's one on every Main Street, like I said. People almost didn't think about it. It was almost the equivalent of having a city cemetery because often you were not restricted by membership to who could be buried there. So I did read an interesting um, little antidote in... Uh, Marilyn Yalom's The American Burial Place, where she talks about the link between Freemasonry and the gold rush, and talked about how Masons in many cases set up some of the first cemeteries during the gold, in the gold rush towns. And that's still, like a lot of these, when you read about ghost towns and things like that, if you go in, you will see rampant Masonic symbolism in their cemeteries, because these men went out there and this was their organizational system in places where there was very little law and order in places where there were not organized churches. The Masonic Hall in many cases became the source of stability for the town. And it was ways that men who were moving west, they didn't know anybody. They were moving without their families. They were a thousand miles away from home. They could find some semblance of home in the familiarity of a Mason's Hall. Now, does that necessarily explain their connection to cemeteries? No, not by a long shot. But Again, I think that because they were these stabilizing forces in towns, this is the reason that they do become so central to the settlement, particularly of the American West. Okay, so it's time to talk a little bit about the symbols. Again, most of these are things that you have seen. You are probably familiar, I'm pretty sure everyone is, who has, even if you're not interested in cemeteries, which... If you're not interested in cemeteries, I'm not sure why you're listening to this particular podcast, but 
always up for new listeners. Regardless, this is the Square and Compass. Now, I think these, in many ways, maybe are more familiar to people just by their presence and how common they are in cemeteries. So the square and compass obviously being builder's tools harkens back to the connections with the Temple of Solomon and its architect, as well as the tenets of Freemasonry having its origins in the guilds. Now, here in the United States, most often in the center of the square and compass symbol, you are going to see the letter G. Now, there is a lot of debate over what the G stands for. Some claim it stands for God. I have a little trouble agreeing with this for a number of reasons. First of all, there is no one supreme being who is worshipped by the Masons. Secondly, the theory that the G stands for geometry, I think, makes a little bit more sense in terms of their values and their knowledge. Now, granted, the United States is also a predominantly Protestant country. So it's possible that God, you know, the Christian God being the most common, does work its way in. But there is also a lot of anti-Masonic sentiment that happens in like the 1820s, 1830s. So post-George Washington, post-Revolutionary War, going into the establishment of particularly the Victorian era cemeteries, there is a lot of anti-Mason attack. Now, this could have done one of two things. This often happens from religious institutions. Either they put the G in there to make them seem like they are more playing along with the religious crowds acknowledging God, or it could be put in there for geometry to give the finger to the religious crowd. It could go either way. So I don't know. Uh, They are not saying. Um, It's possible that at different times it meant both things. In addition to this, in more complex Masonic headstones, you will see other elements of the building trade, things like plumb lines, tools, all sorts of different things that, again, go into the origins of the Masons as builders. Likewise, Masonic symbols also often feature architectural elements, things like columns in particular. They definitely harken back to that classical look. And if you see a lot of Masonic buildings, and it depends on the era, I know certainly the Masonic Hall here in Atlanta, the most prominent one near the old train station, um, which is right on Peachtree, if you see that particular Masonic Hall, it has a very classical look to it. It's not to say that there there are actually multiple Masonic Halls here in Atlanta. But those elements, those classical elements, definitely tie back into the link of Freemasonry to the great builders and, of course, to the Temple of Solomon. In addition to that, you will see a number of other symbols and numbers associated with them. So the number 33 you will see a lot, and this has to do with the level of different Masonic rites, particularly in the Scottish rite, you will see the all-seeing eye. Very often, you will see Masonic and Oddfellows graves mixed up. Now, often, Masons were also Oddfellows, and Oddfellows were also Masons, so there is a lot of overlap, but the all-seeing eye is one of the things that definitely overlaps between the two of them. 
with rays um, sort of projecting from it, often from clouds. Um, there are a few other symbols. The tent is another shared symbol that you will see from both of them. There are a lot of what I would call communal symbols. A lot of these are more unique to the Oddfellows, like the bundled sticks and things like that. The hive can be seen on both. One of the Masonic symbols I think that is pretty unique that you don't necessarily see a crossover of, and I read an interesting article about this, is Jacob's Ladder, which a lot of these fall into sort of the early time period of it. So, like I said, that anti-Mason sentiment that happens in like the 1820s, 1830s, one of the things that came up against this was a book called The True Masonic Chart. It was written by two Freemasons named Jeremy Cross and Isaac Doolittle. And it was extremely popular. And so as a result of this tome that they wrote about their experience with Masonic symbols, it sort of is something that a lot of different lodges latch onto. And this is where I say it's very highly subjective because different lodges use different symbols. Everybody uses the compass and the square, but a lot of the others are very subjective. Um, you see sort of the burning pillar or burning urn, very common. There are lots of different things that will go together. There are also a lot of things that are carryovers from some of the religious texts. But I love that, you know, they both equally embrace things that are religious, like, for example, Noah's Ark. But you can also see, you know, the architectural elements and triangles showing the Pythagorean theorem and their embracing of knowledge. In many ways, I think that there is a a push in Freemasonry for this attainment of knowledge. And it's a wide knowledge. It's knowledge of the natural world. It's knowledge of the built environment, all of these things. Some of them carry over into two different elements. So, for example, the five-pointed star, which is most commonly seen on the Order of the Eastern Star, is also present in many different types of Masonic symbolism. Now, you also see a certain evolution over time. They definitely get simpler over time. So I think like this 1820s, there was such a push where it was like there was real pride in being Mason. You see these really elaborate Masonic headstones where they have, you know, curtains and columns and, you know, four or five different symbols. Later on, it's just the compass. And I think this happens also along with the mechanization of gravestone manufacturing Granite headstones tend to be a lot simpler. It's really these early ones, which you see a lot of them in marble, um, that are going to have the far more elaborate designs. And sometimes they have these elements that are combined. So, for example, you will see a five-pointed star, which has the mason's compass and square, and then it also has the all-seeing eye. So, again, if you have listened to the podcast for a long time, you know that I actually have an Oddfellows tattoo on my chest. Um, and it incorporates one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So I have the all seeing eye. Now I have to look at it to see what I actually have. I have the book of knowledge. I have a hive. I have the winged hourglass. So like there are a number of different symbols often, which are all shown together. Mine is based on the Southwestern Lodge tomb, which is an Oddfellows rest in New Orleans. All of these symbols 
tell a different story. And if you think about the entire experience of being a Mason and the idea that you learn more the higher up you go as you progress from being an apprentice to being a journeyman or a fellow of the craft and eventually a master Mason, it makes sense that there are also symbols that go along with this. And if you have ever seen like a truly striking Masonic hall, this symbolism carries over. Um, probably the most striking, and I didn't see the whole thing. I've seen pictures of the whole thing. There is one up in Northeastern Massachusetts, which is in a building that was designed by Henry Hobson Richardson, one of my favorite American architects. And the top level of this hall, which was originally supposed to be the town hall for the town of Northeastern, um, it's Oaks Ames Memorial Hall, if you are that interested. But if you go up to the top level, it is actually a Masonic room where their meetings were held and it has some extraordinary paintings and I peeked just far enough up up the stairs to get like a glimpse at it um really extraordinary room and like I said I've seen pictures of it online but the Masons embraced all of this they owned a lot of property they covered a lot of territory now being that they were in the building trade and they were Masons by trade it doesn't really surprised me that you also see particularly early on a lot of expression of these different ideas in tombstones because it would not surprise me if many of them were also masons all of this is linked in terms of ideology and things like that now one specific group in one specific cemetery i will admit i'm like I, I was hesitant to go into cemeteries because I looked at a lot of cemeteries and none of them really jumped out at me as having just like a unique story to tell. Unfortunately, there have been a lot of lost Masonic graves and a lost Masonic cemeteries. I already mentioned San Francisco. The same can be said of um, the cemeteries that were removed for Cheeseman Park in Denver, things like that. So I tried to pick one cemetery that I thought was very interesting and to go into that, we have to talk a little bit about Prince Hall Freemasonry. So if you listen to the episode that I did on the Freedom Trail in Boston, I actually talked about Prince Hall's grave. So I would recommend you go back and listen to that if you're interested at all in the early American cemeteries in Boston, the Freedom Trail, etc., etc. But Prince Hall, for those of you who might not be familiar along with 14 other black men or mulatto men in the early United States were pushing to become Freemasons. And all of this is happening around the same time as the American Revolution. Now, I have already explained that Philadelphia, Boston, there were already well-established lodges in all of these places. And what eventually they had to do, because the British Lodge did not want to grant them their own lodge, what they did was they went behind the British Lodge's back and they obtained a warrant to create their own lodge from the Grand Lodge of Ireland. And this is where I say there's a problem with the fact that Freemason, maybe not a problem, maybe it's a good thing in this case, there is no central body. So you cannot just create a lodge out of nothing. You have to be sponsored, but... In this case, they were robbing Peter to pay Paul. So even though the lodge that was governing that particular area was the British Lodge, they went to the Grand Lodge of Ireland and were granted a warrant to create it. So what the British Lodge in Boston does is that they acknowledge this new black Freemason Hall. 
But what they do is that they are allowed to meet, they are allowed to do charitable works and things like that and practice the tenets of Freemasonry. What they are not allowed to do is they are not allowed to initiate new members. So that kept the size very small. So this is basically only like 14, 15 new things. After the Revolutionary War in 1784, at this point, all of the American lodges have a schism where they are broken off from the original British lodge. And at this point, they are allowed to incorporate under their own grand lodges, which are organized by state. And at this point, what was originally acknowledged becomes African American Lodge 459. So this is the proto-lodge, and then following the 1784 break, they again are acknowledged, they are part of the system, but they will not become full and independent and able to operate on the same level as other lodges until following the War of 1812. So basically, after the Revolutionary War, there's still some ties to the British lodges. 1812, basically American Revolution Part Two, boom done and at this point they form their own separate system in the united states and this becomes the de facto grand lodge number one of prince hall freemasonry so for most of the u.s history there is a separate set of black freemasons and all black freemason lodges are called prince hall freemasonry after this original one which is founded by prince hall in 1775 in boston now, this original lodge, number one, which was the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, formed their own cemetery. And it is the only remaining cemetery that was associated with this original black African-American Freemasonry. So, the Prince Hall Grand Lodge, which was founded 1775-1776, in 1868, so following the Civil War, then Grand Master William B. Kendall decided to deed a portion of his land on Gardner Street in Arlington, Massachusetts, to the lodge. So from the late 1860s, for roughly 30 years, this was the burial place of all of the black masons in Massachusetts that were associated with Grand Lodge. Some really significant people, including Grand Masters. Around the turn of the 20th century, so around the year 1900, it begins to be disused. It's a small piece of land. It's not enormous. I suspect that they didn't have many more graves to sell. Things are also changing pretty rapidly. It's very different from the post-war era. And so they stop using it. And so it basically is forgotten by only with the exception of like a few historians until it's sort of rediscovered in the 1980s. So in 1987, it is added to the National Register of Historic Places. Between 1987 and 1990, they clean it up. Local masons take over the cemetery. They keep it up and maintain it. And they place a marker there honoring all of those who were buried there. And it now still exists in, like, on the borders of Arlington, Massachusetts, as a park. So I thought that was a pretty cool story. And it also, again, is a perfect example of how Freemasonry really transcends a lot of the more general stories in the country. Now, if you are looking for Masonic symbols, it's almost impossible to go to any graveyard anywhere and not see them the overwhelming majority of them are going to be these typical 
Masonic symbols of the square and compass. Often, if there was a smaller Masonic population, you will find sections of the cemetery that are dedicated to the Masons. So one example I will give here in Georgia is Rose Hill Cemetery down in Macon actually has a lovely section. And so they have both a Grand Master Mason's grave that is really exceptional and has a number of different symbols um, on it. I will definitely post pictures of that one. It's right when you come in the entrance gate. It's really, really striking. And then they have a whole Masonic section. So even if the Masons were locally not starting their own cemetery, they often were offering benevolent rites to citizens of the local lodge. And many of these remain active through the modern day. I already mentioned that, you know, there are memorial park cemeteries that have Masonic symbols. In fact, you know, if you are a longtime listener, you know that the way that memorial parks work is that they have a central feature, whatever it might be. And actually, if you're paying attention today, I posted one on my Instagram. It was a giant anchor. Um, But there are lots of different things. So Forest Lawn, the famous one is the Statue of David. Man with a fig leaf, probably more to my taste than the Masonic symbol, but you will often see a central Masonic compass that is used as a symbol. And so these Masonic sections, they are still in use in modern perpetual care SCI type cemeteries today, which just gives you an idea of just the enduring quality of all of these particular icons and things like that. There has been a lot written about the symbols and about the more unusual examples. The Masons are often still very active in keeping these cemeteries clean and maintained. I remember when I lived in Philadelphia, the Masons were very active in cleaning up uh, in Mount Moriah when that needed to be done, including former Grand Masons of their local lodge. But there isn't like a great definitive history of their cemeteries. And I sort of wish that there was. And that's something that I think somebody needs to do more of a definitive research on and look more at the meeting minutes. And again, I think this is part of the problem with it being a secret society is that these are less talked about. And they are somewhat less macabre than the Odd Fellows. I think the Odd Fellows tend to get a little bit more press because of the coffins and the skeletons and things like that. So... I feel like I failed you in many ways because I was only able to give you very broad strokes on the history of Masonic cemeteries and Masonic symbolism, but it's hard because there is not one cohesive story or cohesive language even of symbols because there are so many different branches and there are so many different interpretations of what Freemasonry is. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please let me know. Uh, I would really appreciate a five-star review. It helps make me much more searchable. People who are looking for cemetery content can find me more easily. Uh, It moves me up the charts. You can now review on Spotify, which is super exciting. I like Spotify. Generally, that's where the podcast posts first. And they were the first ones where you could share episodes. Um, So... If you do have five minutes, please do. Um, It's been like a month since I've gotten a review, so I would love a new one. Maybe bump me up, get me back to that perfect 5.0. I would love that. Follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. I think I am caught up on all my emails. Feel free to shoot me an email, tomboftheviewpodcast at gmail.com. If you have an idea for a topic, if you have a question, I will do my best to get back to you in a timely manner. Um, other than that, I guess I will just see you next week. For now, I'm Liz Clappin.
And this is Tour with a View.